this is the Poll Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch of George Washington University and the Project on Middle East Political Science. On this week's episode, we hear from Kevin Mazur about his new book, Revolution in Syria, Identity, Networks, and Repression, just published by Cambridge University Press. We'll also talk to Fatin Gosen of the University of Arizona, who, along with a team of co-authors, has written an article about Syrian refugees called The Journey Home, published in the American Political Science Review. And finally, we'll talk to Heiko Vimen about Lebanon's banking crisis and the prospects for political change in Lebanon. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Kevin Mazur. He's a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton University, Future of Conflict Fellow at the International Crisis Group, and the author of the brand new book, Revolution in Syria, Identity, Networks, and Repression, just published by Cambridge University Press. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So tell us about this book, and uh, what do you think the major contribution of it is going to be? So the book is about the first year of the Syrian uprising, about how it began with a whole wide range of different strategies taken by people challenging the uh, incumbent regime and how it turned into something that really looks like an ethnic civil war about a year into it. Um, And what I what I tried to do with the book, at least for the academic contribution, was to, to try to think about this idea of why civil wars begin and become uh, become something that flows largely along ethnic lines, even though maybe a lot of the claims that people are making at the beginning uh, are not uh, of that of that nature, and. Uh, also, that you you have people from different you know from different ethnic backgrounds in, engaging in in popular challenge and then in later in, in violence and how that can shift over time, uh, and so what what I think that will try to to help do is to to create some kind of uh, if not a synthesis but to to nuance some of the the views that are out there in the literature right now in terms of you know how how it is that a war that ends up being fought along ethnic lines uh, comes comes to be right there are some that are focused a little bit more on uh, sort of factors that are within the society whether there's, there's division to begin with and then there are explanations that are much more about sort of how it's in the interest of powerful uh, people to kind of split up a population that might all be united against it against that incumbent uh, power and so it's really something that's happening from the top. Uh, And so what the book does is it looks in very granular detail at the ways in which the Syrian uprising started, but also uh, turns back the clock a little bit and looks at the ways that the the Syrian regime uh, was connected to different parts of society. So of course, uh, its members are primarily drawn from the Alawi ethnic minority, which is about 10% of the population. Uh, but that the, and it, it favored that uh, Alawi. So on average, an Alawi had was getting much more out of the regime, had better st- access to state employment, access to corruption or patronage. Uh, but there were also many clients across ethnic boundaries in the Sunni uh, Arab ethnic majority and all of the other ethnic groups within the country. And so what the book tries to do is to say, let's step back and look at the ways in which the regime created ties to other parts of the society and how it is that it tried to use those ties uh, to try to stop popular challenge and the strategies that it ultimately used, uh, which were violent and the ways in which those were perceived as being directed primarily along ethnic lines and in turn pushed 
a different set of people to challenge. So brought in new people that might not have been challenging in the beginning and also changed the type of rhetoric that they were using to be more about ethnic identity uh, in many cases, though there were still a, a great number of people that were trying to refuse any ethnic interpretation, uh, but also push them towards violence because when you cut off the ability of people to go out into these big public squares, then what are they going to do? They're either going to stay in their homes or they're going to go into the countryside and begin to fight you because that's the only way that they can challenge the regime. And so ultimately, uh, what I think the book shows is then that, of course, the state has a big role in, quote unquote, ethnicizing conflict, but its role is not so much in the moment that they that the sort of leadership just up and decides, gee, it'd be great if we can put this revolution down by splitting the Alawis and the Sunnis, but in the ways that it ruled the society, the way that it fragmented society, sometimes along ethnic lines, so in terms of giving Alawis more, but also just fragmenting the different parts of the society from each other by giving, making some people clients and exclusive including others. And so uh, what, what I would hope for political scientists to sort of take out of that then is that it's not just the, what happens in the moment of challenge that ethnicizes conflict in terms of what the state does, but the ways in which an ethnically dominated regime rules beforehand that, that will sometimes force its hand to, to ethnicize conflict in this way to stay in power. So as you say, uh, it, it really goes into great granular detail, looking at how these things unfold at the, at the local level. For, for readers who aren't, uh, you know, kind of really, really deeply, intimately familiar with uh, the Syrian case, could you give us a bird's eye view of what are the patterns of challenge and conflict and, and ethnicization um, which the book traces? Sure. So one of the things that actually, I, another thing I hope that the book does is to give uh, a better uh, account of the ways in which the 2011 uprising unfolded, and specifically the diversity of challenge that it began with and the ways in which the regime repressed this. And so this is something that uh, you actually would see in a lot of the literature when you have people writing about this in Arabic, they'll talk about two re multiple revolutions. I say there are three at the beginning, but in, in, in the Arabic literature, there's also often two. They talk about a revolution of Faza'a and a revolution of freedom or of Tahrir squares. So Faza'a is this idea, it means fear, but it also, it's a word that was used a lot in Dara, this city that where the revolution began, which means a sort of collective response where the entire society, where people know each other, they band together to uh, deal with some type of calamity. In this case, it's the, the, the government shooting at a bunch of people that are, are gathered in central squares. And so it's very much focused on uh, something about the locality at the at the very beginning. So they're focused on the, the things that are happening to members of their community. So the so boys are being uh, taken away and tortured, the societies, the, the, the local societies being insulted. Uh, and these are the things that, that motivate people. And similarly, in a coastal town called Banyas, uh, you have protests that are totally unrelated to this incident at the very beginning. Uh, and they're uh, about a, a, a variety of things. One of them that the teachers in the schools can no longer wear niqab, this face veil. Uh, and, and so they're protesting about that. They're protesting about losing fishing rights and, and sort of Turkish goods coming in. Uh, the things that, that, of course, they're making political demands at a higher level also, but very much related to the community. These are things that we, that we sometimes sweep under the rug because we tend to look at just what's going on in, in central squares of Homs, for example, or even in the very beginning in Damascus, where you have something that looks like Egypt's Tahrir Square, where it's not people that are a tightly knit community that are networked and coming together, but it's really just uh, everyone from a big urban area. Some of them are just aggrieved people that, you know, they just hate the regime, maybe because they've arrested their family members for being 
being for political crimes, being false with the Muslim Brotherhood, but there are also a lot of people from all ethnic backgrounds, including Alawis, including Christians, including whomever, that just want to see a new social contract. And these and types of people- And these local level things get lost in the grand narratives. Right. Well, I mean, we, we could pick one or the other, right? And, and, and I think that's what, what often happens. And what I want to, what I want to try to show is that all these different things are, are going on and, and, and mixing. Uh, and so, and what's important about that also that I think gets lost in it. So, so is, is that you actually have different things that the regime is doing in terms of trying to deal with these people. So in a place where, for example, you have much more tribal ties that the regime has instrumentalized to rule in the years before the uprising, uh, the regime will not shoot at people. It will not beat up and arrest and disappear a bunch of activists. It will talk to tribal elders and say, look, you guys really gotta, you gotta get your people to cut this out. And sometimes it works a little bit, ultimately it fails, but it's using that technique in some places In other places it's just shooting into crowds where it doesn't have very good linkages to the population. Uh, and, and the one thing that I wanna add there is that you also have a very low level and very sporadic level of violence being done within some of these non or initially largely nonviolent protests. So you'll have people that have hunting rifles, uh, air rifles in their homes and they'll bring them to the protests to defend the pro to quote unquote defend the protesters but when you shoot at the security forces it's going to it's going to push them further and now this violence is enormously disproportionate in terms of the regime using it or its agents using it rather than the societal members but what, what we have to remember is that there are very split sort of news environments and views of the world, which means that when you can see that one member of a local Alawi community, as happened in Homs, is killed and it's put on the put, put on the regime TV, or a member of the security forces or the army is killed, then that's put on TV to show that to, to prove to a lot of people and to really fragment uh, the, the, the environment of potential protesters to prove that this is a conspiracy against Syria. And so when we kind of, I guess that's another sort of side thing is that we roll our eyes when we see something from official state television saying that, you know, there's cell phones with Israeli numbers that are being brought into Dara. And this is the reason that, you know, all of this is happening. There are drug smugglers that are, you know, kidnapping the youth and feeding them drugs. But, you know, they, Th this actually resonates with with some people within the society. So the regime is not just sort of doing it for to to to, to I don't know have some justification. It really fits a part of the population. And so so when you get a, even a tiny bit of violence from protesters, that that will push some people out of a potential challenge that might you know bring about a a different, more democratic, inclusive regime. So when you start looking at it in these terms, um, one of the things which which really struck me. Um, in, in, your, in your analysis of this was how you describe the ethnicization of the conflict as, as contingent, as um, not inevitable, but also foreseeable. And, mm. and I want to dig into that a little bit about, you know, exactly how inevitable you, you see this as being. Yeah, you know, I struggled with this uh, this question a lot because uh, it's something that a lot of observers would have sort of predicted and were amazed hadn't happened, uh, that, that there wasn't just a sort of conflict along ethnic lines. Because, I mean, let's not forget that, you know, the, the, the regimes headed by an Assad uh, have been in power in Syria since 1970, which means that, you know, you've had now uh, 50 years of, of rule of certainly by the 1980s, you would call it ethnically, ethnic, ethnically dominated autocracy, I would say probably even before then, but somehow they managed to stay in power. And, my, and the argument I make is, of course, there's a lot of repression uh, and, you know, and just security forces doing uh, really unimaginable things using arbitrary violence. Uh, but there are also people that are bound to the regime by these cross-ethnic uh, ties of, of patronage, clientelism, uh, or, or state employment. And so, uh, 
I, I think that that's a, it's one of these hard things to square that actually people who have, I think, done a nice job of sometimes drawing that out, like Nicholas Van Damme said, looked back and said, look, it was inevitable that it was going to end this way. And, and I, I really kind of thought that the, I, I struggled with that a lot. And it was um, surprisingly enough for someone that loves to get into the details of a single place so much, it was looking outside of Syria at other ethnically dominated autocracies and how they've dealt with challenge, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa and the Gulf, uh, to think about why that's not necessarily inevitable. And so one of, go ahead. So, so you developed this framework then for trying to see like when and why does it happen, looking at things like, uh, you talked about this before, the density of social ties or, or the existence of these uh, patronage networks um, linking people to the state. So walk us through that a little bit then. Sure. So the idea would be that the, you know, I, we, we need to look at uh, a revolutionary situation as not just sort of its outcome, which in this case was uh, an ethnic civil war, but to, to begin with these, what, what, you know, begin from how it began, which in this case was a set, it was popular challenge. And we want to look at sort of what type of violence is being used and also whether there's violence being used or not and the claims that, that people are making. Um, and, and so what, we see, at least at the beginning in this very initial time period, is that most of the claims are being made about uh, some kind of reform to the, to the state that makes it more democratic, that makes it a state for all people, not about ethnic identity and not very much violence being used. And the argument that I make in the book is that the people that we would expect to be making those type of claims are people who are not included in the regime's networks, which, as I sort of mentioned before, are both people that are involved in the programmatic arms of the state, so state employees, people that are getting some out of its cooperative, the, the agricultural cooperatives, out of uh, a labor union that maybe if they're not even happy about being in this official trade syndicate, they uh, are afraid of losing their job. Uh, it's, it, you know, so, so they don't protest. Uh, but, but the people that are excluded from that are well, the ones that are likely to, to, to be engaging in protests and also people that want to make this new civic contract, this kind of, uh, the kind of activists that we often think of as, as populating a, a kind of a Tahrir Square. Mm -hmm. And so those, that's the kind of thing that I, I would, uh, that, that I that theoretically expect that these are the people that make this patchwork of ch initial challengers. Uh, and, and so it's the, the ties to the state or specifically exclusion from those state networks that are what we would expect uh, condition initial challenge. Now, a, a regime that's, that is ethnically exclusive uh, or, or is sort of ethnically dominated, right, and goes across ethnic, ethnic boundaries in terms of how it, it hands out resources, but primarily or disproportionately hands out resources to members of its own group is going to try to shore up its ties to its clients. Uh, but it also has, but maybe there's two problems. One is that that might not be enough, right? Because you have the way that you rule is by fragmenting the different parts of the society and then kind of hoping that none of them will coordinate and come together and then reinforcing your ties to people you have. Uh, and the other, so, so that might not be enough, right? And if you don't have more resources, like a lot of the Gulf states, then you can't just throw money out of helicopters at people to make them get off the streets. Uh, and the other problem is that you could really have Tahrir squares on your hands. So remember that this is an uprising that's happening months after uh, in Tunisia and then in Egypt, protesters occupied a central square for weeks on end, eventually causing enough international pressure that parts of regimes cut the other parts of the regime loose uh, and ultimately caused the leaders of the country to step down. And so this is something that factors into all of the calculations of security sir, of, of, the, of the Syrian regime where they say, look, you know, we we don't want necessarily, maybe they may some of them certainly do, uh, but a lot of them don't want to just shoot people in squares because it would cause a huge reaction. But what else are we going to do? Because we can't have Tahrir Square in Helms, in Damascus, in Aleppo. So uh, they're 
they, they really only have violence to be able to get people off the street. And what we see in the Syrian case is that this happens very much, right? You get people out of the squares, you do raids into these popular neighborhoods of densely linked people, uh, and you not you you catch some of these activists who are kind of trying to keep everything very much focused on nonviolent challenge and citizenship focused demands in central squares. You get them out. You also aggravate a lot of people from these local densely linked local communities that aren't getting much out of the regime. So you turn all these people against you. You push them into the countryside. So now you have all these new people that maybe weren't part of the initial challenge that have these dense networks, often have uh, have networks to, uh, to smuggling networks that are outside of the country to be able to bring in weapons. And also the border to Turkey becomes opened up because of uh, you know, several months of ongoing challenge. And so weapons start to come into the country more. And so you have now a set of these civic challengers are arrested or they're in the countryside and you have all these, so they're not gonna be making civic claims anymore. And you also have a different form of challenge because when people are getting shot at, they bring weapons to protest themselves, or they just start attacking regime checkpoints, forming their own brigades in the countryside. And so now you have armed challenge making still not exclusively or, or even predominantly in many cases, ethnic claims, but you have language that would have been heavily suppressed, like calling a battalion, calling a group after a famous Sunni figure that has a very uh, it's sort of anti-Shia or especially anti-Alawi inflection. Uh, it, it, that wouldn't have happened in the early weeks because these civic leaders would have tried to, to sort of stop that uh, where those leaders are no longer there. Then you have a different set of claims and a different people making that set of people making those claims. And that that is what, what I would describe as ethnicization of challenge through the interaction of the challenger and the incumbent. So it kind of smooths out all of these local, um, these local differences into something which looks more and more like a national type of challenge. Well, I, I actually would say that the, the national challenge, uh, it, it's, it's more similar across the, the territory, but the national, to me, the national challenge is the one that says, look, we want a free Syria. We want a democratic Syria for all of its members. And that we see less as time goes on, right? That what's, what's, more, un, what's more national, what's, what's uniform, what's more uniform across territory is a challenge that says, we want to get rid of this sectarian regime, we're, or in some cases, we're sick of Alawite rule. So it's, in a way, it's more uniform, but less national. Right. So then, you know, when, when you look at the uh, the drivers there, you mentioned uh, the, the the impact of violence and also the um, the importance of pre-existing ties uh, through patronage and state employment and that sort of thing. But let's talk a little bit about this. Um, the third uh, uh, kind of variable there, which was the um, not just the social networks, but the existence mm -hmm. of these brokers. Um, people sure. who the regime could turn to to try and calm things down or to mediate things. And who are these people? What happened to them? Yeah, so it's a it's an interesting question. I mean, it's something that you hear so much about in you know in, when you when I would go do interviews, but it's not something that people have written about very much. And what I discovered is that it's because it's something that would be really difficult to to research, especially before uh, twenty eleven, when you have all of these people within Syria that you know you're not allowed to move around freely to to talk to people. Uh, most most foreign researchers wouldn't be able to, and certainly Syrian researchers are afraid to do so. Um, and and so it's something that was sort of in the air, but wouldn't have been talked. About, it wouldn't have been theorized, uh, at least in terms of 
you know, detailed case studies be happening. But uh, I tried to do as best I could to, to, to understand this and actually uh, had a, a program that, that I have helped coordinate to, to try to get Syrian researchers to write, uh, to write about some of these things. And, and frankly, there are a lot of oral history projects uh, among Syrians largely outside the country now that are, are, are trying to, to, to understand more of these people. But essentially what you have is you have these pre-existing social networks of local communities within Syria. So here I'm thinking about, you know, a small village, maybe people are all of the same tribal background, or a neighborhood where people all marry one another, this is sort of through generations, uh, you're going to have a very, you know, a, a relatively stable set of, of people that are, are living in that neighborhood, and you have community elders that would have networked with whatever political authority was there, and then eventually become instrumentalized by the, the regime dominated by Assad family. Uh, and so these types of elders or a right? So it could be a, a tribal elder, it could even be like a mukhtar, which is kind of like a local mayor. It's someone that has status in the community, usually as an elder person in a, in, in a, in a, in a local, uh, a local community, a village or a neighborhood. And this person would often negotiate with the regime. It could be a simple thing like, you know, this this road needs to get fixed, or we're not we're not getting some kind of service that we think that we need. Would go petition people within a ministry or within the security services, especially if somebody's done. Now, political crimes are a different issue. It's hard to get people out of political crimes. Uh, there's there's that kind of intervention is difficult. But let's say there was, you know, somebody got arrested for for some kind of non-political crime. Uh, this person, this waji, this this local notable would go and negotiate with the relevant security force to try to get uh, a member of their community out. And so at, at the same time, so this was a conduit from the society to the regime. But there was also things that the regime would require, right? So this type of uh, in-group policing or what Phil Rossler calls cooperative counterinsurgency, the regime can depend on this type of person to make sure that nobody's crossing the line within that local, that local community. Now, what I don't, I, what I think is as hard to, I hope this comes through in the book, but it's hard to express. This doesn't mean that this is just someone that's like, it's just an agent of of the the regime, right? This is often an ambivalent relationship because if you were just viewed as an agent of the regime, you, you probably wouldn't be able to do that type of mediation on behalf of the community. You would lose some of the credibility, and so it doesn't mean that this is sort of a society that's set in place forever. We see uh, that you know there's a lot of competition within a tribe, for example, to be the person that that gets to do this, and the regime also kind of plays with that. So. So these type of people are, are, are important in the regime's initial outreach, uh, but in many cases, so it's, sorry to answer, to go back and answer the question, what happens is that these people become marginalized uh, because the local society members just reject their advances. In, in Dara, for example, one of them appears with security forces who have just shot at the people, and so they're just booed off the stage. And in other cases, they break with the regime, right? These ties in, in into local densely linked Sunni communities often do not hold. And that's part of why uh, you see these communities going into, into much more sort of extended total, uh, uh, total challenge to the regime. Now, a few minutes ago, you mentioned uh, some of the challenges of doing this kind of research. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the book is, is, is fabulously detailed and rich empirically. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, the, 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 the data that you generated? How did you go about studying things like uh, social networks and mm -hmm. uh, the, the course of violence and, and of different forms of challenges? Mm -hmm. um, just walk us through a little bit about the, 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 the research process. 
Sure. So it was really a, it was a very much an iterative process. I mean, when I started, I started out to try to do a mixed methods study uh, where I used event, I built an event catalog. So I, you know, read uh, thousands more than I cared to, to recall uh, articles from several local sources uh, to build this event catalog, did some sort and I gathered up a bunch of statistical data about from the census, from the many different places. I made an ethnicity database and tried to do a sort of standard statistical analysis. Uh, and what I often found was that it showed some of some interesting kind of patterns, but it also showed something that was very obvious, which is that almost all of this is happening in, uh, in Sunni areas. But I said, there's a lot more going on here from just reading the newspaper articles. But at the same time, I did most of the event catalog building before I did field work. And then I spent uh, about mm, a little over a year between mostly in Lebanon, but also in Turkey, the Kurdish uh, regional governorate of Iraq uh, and Jordan and interviewing people. And so what I kind of realized from these interviews is a heck of a lot more going on here that we need to understand, especially this variation within the Sunni ethnic group. And, and so at the same time, I was trying to explain the, the what was going on in 2011. I was trying to also wrap my mind around how is it that this regime was put together uh, in these ways that we don't read about very much because it hasn't been accessible. Uh, and so one of the, so of course I tried to interview a wide range of people, but you know, the, the Syrian research context has uh, in some ways become easier in the sense that there are a lot of people outside the, the country, they've brought documents with them, they want to, to talk, uh, but you know, it's, it's also difficult in a place like Lebanon where they're also under threat, right? Uh, you know, I was talking to someone once who had a coughing fit in the middle of our discussion in a cafe. It's because he thought that this guy that was sweeping the street was a Syrian regime agent. So that's the kind of thing that you, you know, that makes it hard to interview people often in, in a place like Lebanon. And so you do, of course, the best you can to capture a range of views. But the thing that it really, I think, pushed it over for me was that there's just an explosion of writing these oral history projects I referenced, the Doha Institute and a, a lot of other small research institutes have done really uh, sort of detailed research on localities that it's written about, uh, you know, almost exclusively in Arabic. And so I basically just read all of these narratives and tried to, to sort of pull them together in, in, in my own, they've done it nationally, but in my own way into a national narrative and, and to try to speak to this, these, uh, you know, English language political science literatures. But, but really, I think having the background of all of these interviews and hearing what people were saying, and then forced me to, to go and read about localities and to do the research in in Arabic, I think was what really uh, allowed me to, to, to sort of learn the things that I that, that I ultimately came up with. And what I what I should say though is that that made me really, I think, reduce the importance of the quantitative work um, in in the book because I think that it, it shows us some some patterns, but really to, to understand them and unpack them, that requires us to look at uh, these these localities in a way that you know we really need these these local reports on. Um, one, I guess, one last question um, about the about the theory and the the methodology is the the categorization um, and the use of the term ethnic is something that I'm sure people mm -hmm. have asked you about before. Um, using ethnic to describe uh, essentially a Sunni Shia divide, how did you think about uh, these kinds of identity categories and how mm -hmm. you would go about measuring them and thinking about them as political identities? Yeah, so it's actually, um, it, it's not primarily, a, it's not only a Sunni Shia or Sunni Alawi in this case divide, it's, uh, you also have a national divide with Kurds. Course, and so that's yeah. a whole, it's it's a whole chapter. And I think there's, you know, there are also the other smaller ethnicities that, that become uh, instrumentalized, but they're also religious identities, right? So there's a question of why don't you, why don't you just use the term sect? Uh, and so 
the, the reason I use the term ethnic is because it's a it's it's one that's being used uh, in this sort of barbarian sense in a in a in a broader a broader sociological and, and political science literature just to talk about uh, to talk about these categorical identities. And so I think that you know when we we talk about the sort of Levantine context, sect has its limitation because really it's often talking about something that divisions within uh, a single religion and often uh, about a group that's supposed to be sort of small and hermetically sealed at least historically we don't we don't see that uh, you know with, with really today any of the the uh, ethnic groups within Syria and so I use that as an umbrella term that that encompasses religious difference uh, national difference uh, and so these are uh, and, and also sort of probably it wouldn't be relevant in this case, but a, a more racial difference. Uh, so it, I, I use the term in that way to be as broad as possible so as not to impose assumptions on what it is that, okay, well, there's this linguistic difference which has to operate in a different way than, uh, than a, a religious difference. And, and they could, right? There's a whole big literature about how religion creates these certain types of attachment uh, that maybe function differently, uh, but it doesn't necessarily do that is the point that I'm, I'm trying to get at. And I actually think that the, the divide between Sunnis and Alawis is not one that, that, that functions, at least in this case, as some uh, type of otherworldly issue. It's primarily a struggle over who owns the state that takes on some of these religious sort of language and specific claims about how you know people are going to be policed uh, as members of an Islamic ummah later on in the conflict, but that is very much something that emerges uh, rather than something that happens at the beginning. And so by using the term ethnic rather than uh, one about religious difference, it allows us to sort of preserve the, the possibility that it stays uh, you know, not only non-ethnic, but one that's about a difference that's primarily about state ownership rather than something that's otherworldly. Great. So I guess last question then. Um, so what do you think are the, the most important or for you, the most troubling misunderstandings about that first year of uprising in Syria? And how does your book help to correct them? Hmm. Well, I think that I, I really think that the biggest misunderstanding is that it's it would be monolithic, that it's either uh, it's just these are this is the repressed the majority and it was just they were just going to come out and this is the way it was going to turn out or that this was something that was really just a bunch of you know civic minded people that massed in a square and got mowed down by a, a nasty regime and that that's what broke that the regime caused this war and that the, the regime did in some important sense but that sense is not primarily in that they they the people in the square were, were being shot at. It was it was the way that they ruled people in the first place uh, in, in, in the years that, that preceded it that created this diversity of reactions by the society and that also created a diversity of techniques that were being used. And because because of the, you know, they, they didn't have these other things at their disposal, like resources or overwhelming physical force uh, that you see in some other other case contexts, they weren't able to contain this. And so there's the contingency and the diversity of the ways in which these revolutionary processes play out, particularly in an ethnically dominated autocracy, uh, is what I guess I would like to, to, to have people take away about how it is that the Syrian uprising unfolded. Well, great. We've been speaking with Kevin Mazur, a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton and a Future of Conflict fellow at the Crisis Group, about his new book, Revolution in Syria, published by Cambridge University Press. Kevin, thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Mark. 
This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Fatin Hosen of the University of Arizona. She's the article, along with a number of colleagues, of, of a new article, The Journey Home, Violence, Anchoring, and Refugee Decisions to Return. Fatin, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. So you wrote this article with a, with a group of colleagues, uh, Tiffany Chu, Miranda Simon, Alex Braithwaite, uh, Michael Frith, and Joanna Jandali. And um, tell us about what you did and uh, what the major contributions of the article are. Well, this paper was part of a larger uh, Minerva Initiative project that was funded by the Department of Defense and the U.S. Army Research Office that Alex Braithwaite and I had been working on uh, with colleagues at UCL. Now, the main thing about this article is that we are now more than 79 million people, one approximately every 97 individuals on the planet are refugees, internally displaced persons, or asylum seekers. And we know that the UNHCR has promotes three durable solutions, local integration to the host state, third country settlement, and voluntary repatriation to countries of origin. And while all three are key components of refugee regime, they're not equally viable at present because the burden of refugee hosting is shared unequally between developed and developing nations. Um, in fact, more than eight of every 10 refugees are hosted in neighboring countries in developing regions uh, that require outside assistance if they are to meet the demands for resources for their own citizens without lacking funds um, to support their own, uh, sorry, lacking funds to support refugees. Now, but we also, you know, for us, one of the main um, issues is that within the academic and public salt policy circles, there seems to be an assumption that refugees have uniform preferences. And so they're regarded as merely recipients in policy. But in reality, there's considerable variation of the factors that motivate refugees' uh, original decision to flee and the preferences they hold regarding uh, to return home. And so this is why we wanted this paper to focus on the factors that inform refugees' decisions about the future, uh, particularly how their own personal experiences uh, from prime from time prior to displacement um, and during their time in host country shaped their preferences for returning home. So you, you conducted this actually quite large uh, survey of, mm -hmm. uh, of Syrian refugees in Lebanon. So tell us a little bit about the data and the, how you conducted the survey and also the conjoint experiment that you embedded. Yeah. So. In order to uh, do this, we realized and recognized that we needed enough um, uh, representation. And so what we tried to do is to do a sample um, of refugees across all of Lebanon. And so uh, we used miners for data and research um, who, uh, and we looked at those refugees that were inside camps as well as outside uh, camps. They had to be 18 or older. And uh, I also did six focus groups with Syrian refugees after the, the survey um, was done. And so what we um, did was ask them a whole series of questions about their time in Syria and decision to flee, the journey travel to Lebanon, the current situation in Lebanon, but also about decision-making about the future. And so the way we approached it is both a uh, observation from the survey, but also the conjoint. And part of the reason is because in, at the heart of the argument of our paper is about anchoring. How individuals' uh, decision to return can vary depending uh, the, the anchoring to their home uh, country as well as to their host country. And so uh, part of the explanations, we focus on 
this the impact of lived experience mm -hmm. and so in order to distinguish lived experience from attachment to home uh we were able to run a conjoint experiment um uh, which looked at that because in the conjoint experiment the way you run them is because you're varying all these different variables um it allows us to tease out the mechanism and so we can then see whether or not lived experience through violence uh helps people build some kind of uh, what we call you know becoming an expert uh, mm -hmm. on being able to better understand and gauge uh, security risks. Um, and so um, we find in both cases that individuals who did experience violence were the ones that are more likely to have stayed home leaving uh, you know among the last to leave because they were pressured to leave due to violence. And um, they were the ones that are more likely wanting to go uh, back home the most. So direct experience of violence is, a, is pretty straightforward. Uh, explain mm -hmm. a bit more what you mean by attachment to home, though. How do you measure that? So what we tried to do by looking at um, attachment to home, so, so we looked at the proportion of hometown that fled before they fled, right? So we asked people, uh, for example, to differentiate like those that, uh, that fled when almost no one had fled or a small proportion of their hometown had fled or when half of their town had fled or most or all of their hometown had fed. So we argue that those that had stayed the longest, that means when they left almost most or all of their hometown had left, those people had the most attachment to the uh, homeland. Another way we looked at it is discussing flee, right? Mm -hmm. So for individuals who had the time to discuss fleeing, they are better able to detach. This does not mean they did not love their home. Right. We're not saying that they did not love, but that they were able to have that conversation and make that decision versus um, individuals who had to 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 uh, flee on the spot and didn't have even time because violence closed in on them. So so these were kind of some of the ways we tried to capture migration intentions as they were being formed. Um, we also looked at um, a lot of the migration literature tells us that individuals, when they migrate, they tend to reside in an area where other people of their home uh, country reside because that helps them to keep an attachment to home, keeping mm -hmm. the language, keeping the culture, keeping. And usually they tend to live in areas where it's actually people from their own hometown as well, in some cases. And so we looked at also uh, um, whether or not people reside in Syrian neighborhood in Lebanon and whether or not they had employment before war, which means they had this very stable, steady job uh, uh, before coming to uh, Lebanon. So these were the mechanism we tried to get at home attachment. Now, Syrians uh, who, who flee into Lebanon, uh, they're facing a, a pretty unwelcoming environment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. I mean, I mean, the thing is, the unwelcome was not at the beginning, right? So, so, right, so, right. so when we, we also had part of this larger Minerva was we surveyed Leban, 2,400 Lebanese um, who had been displaced by the Lebanese civil war. And one of the questions we asked them that you're now hosts, right? You had experience of a war, now host. We tend to see that, that you know, the um, um, people who were, did not want them um, to host uh, went from 15% who initially did not want to, to then becoming more towards 54%, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because with time, 
the, the, the Syrians are not to blame for the situation in Lebanon. The situation in Lebanon was horrible even before they entered, right? So when they entered in 2011, Lebanon had gone through the, ex, uh, the assassination of the ex-prime minister in 2005, uh, the uh, uh, war uh, in 2006, um, the, the internal strife in 2008, levels of assassination, corruption, uh, basic lack of basic infrastructure. So they, so when you add 1.5 million in three years, that's like here in the U.S., despite our wealth, you add 100 million individuals in three years. There's right. no country basic infrastructure can carry that weight. And so with time as it dragged on and it didn't seem like they were going to leave, this created um, fear among the Lebanese as a replication of the Palestinian refugee situation. And so, you know, people began to see everything as zero sum. And, and that's why we, we see the negative attitude shifting yeah. much more um, as time went on. So that gives us a good sense then of the experience in, in the host community, as well as the varying experiences uh, from the places they fled. So tell us about the findings then. Um, tell us what you saw and uh, why it's significant. Well, I think one of the most important findings when we first presented this paper, APSA 2019, just people had a hard time believing that people who experience violence were more likely to want to return home. And again, I think this goes back to most of the studies have focused on the nation states, right? They focused on a level that did not include the individuals and their preferences. Right. Also, um, by saying that they make homogeneous preferences is people tended to extrapolate from their own experiences as what they would do during violence. Mm -hmm. not really talking to a, 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 a representative sample, or may have talked to one, two, 10, 100 people, right? Um, versus taking a representative sample. As somebody who had been internally displaced in the Lebanese civil war, I mean, and my own family's experience about how we dealt with violence, I did not believe that it was just a simple binary, right? Like, like, like I experienced violence, therefore I would never want to return versus I, uh, you know, did, did not experience violence, I would return. Yeah. And so for, for, us, the, this is, I think, the heart is that we should be better understand that individuals, yes, PTSD may occur and people wanted to avoid uh, triggers, but also, uh, you know, post-traumatic growth can happen and people can become experts mm -hmm. and, and, and better able to gauge. And so I think that for me is the takeaway home is, is we need to open these boxes to not treat refugees as recipients, especially when we from the global north go in to study is to not prime individual mm -hmm. and to be quite you know, uh, respectful of the experience of all the refugees and not just a, you know, a, a group or a handful that we may end up meeting. And so I think for us that uh, whether it is uh, host states, whether it is um, UNHCR, others, they need to understand and not make assumptions about what refugees want. They need to ask them um, what they want. I think that would be the takeaway for me yeah. uh, from a policy and from a um, academic perspective. Now, one of the key mechanisms that you bring out here is this idea of, as you said, they become security experts better at navigating risk or making mm -hmm. assessments of, of what kind of risk they face. How did you arrive at that conclusion? What made you think that that was the key operative mechanism? 
Well, um, I, I guess, you know, I, I, in the appendix, I was uh, upfront about, you know, kind of like the, the me as a researcher, but also as somebody who has experienced this. Mm -hmm. This was our, my family, but also my own experience as somebody who lived through the Civil War and then lived through the 2006 War. It was interesting for me watching how we went from automatically as a family, how we started organizing, thinking, deciding in terms of security, what we do, what we don't do during the 2006 war because in the in that moment you don't know what the future holds right now we can look back and say yes this and that but in that moment when bombs and shellings are are are, mm -hmm. are, are flying down you are trying to make assessments and so one of the examples i use in the um, in the paper is actually my own example in terms of you know learning how to gauge uh shelling so with time we learned how to gauge when shelling do we need to go to the bunker now or later um, during the Civil War, um, because if, as you hear them coming closer, you're like, okay, the probability is higher, it's going to fall in our town, versus if you hear them in the distance, um, you're like, okay, that's not going to be probably coming in here. So, so this idea does not mean that people are not afraid, mm -hmm. but the fact of the matter that the, the, the way you start calculating and thinking, uh, um, 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 again, just, 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 just uh, changes with experience. And so I'd also read a lot of the articles on in terms of um, uh, risks in, um, uh, in hurricanes and earthquake and disaster management, right? And this idea is there as well, that people tend to start gauging those that, that lived through a hurricane or lived through a um, tornado um, or earthquake um, became better expert at gauging versus those that fled before. So we also leaned on risk, uh, um, um, you know, analysis in disaster management um, to uh, build on the anchoring um, concept. Mm -hmm. It's such a fascinating answer. It's probably not what uh, students would be taught in, uh, in most method seminars, but it really makes a lot of sense. Yes, yes. And I think, and that's why we wanted the conjoint experiment, right? We wanted to be able to tease out um, um, these things, uh, but also being respectful of uh, the time of refugees. So we tried, you know, part of the APSR, we have this appendix, and in there we explain in detail our um, ethical challenges and decisions. And so we were trying to balance, and that's why you'll see a less number of people taking the conjoint, because we had multiple conjoints in there. And so about 400 some took this one. Um, we have another paper under review right now that uses another coin joint. Um, um, and so, um, so we had to balance like information, right, um, right. with uh, the time um, uh, and benefit to refugees. And can I just say, though, that, the, um, that having this kind of extended ethics discussion, I think, is a major uh, kind of almost modeling for uh, what people should be doing with, these kind, with this kind of research. Thank you. Appreciate it. I mean, that's a, that's a, a dear uh, to my heart. And, uh, you know, um, talking about colleagues several years, we've been working a lot on that and we appreciated APSR mm -hmm. and the new team taking this on after several of us have been raising it for years, because I feel like one of the challenges we face as a field right now is some of the um, you know, the, the balance between uh, need for information or need, you know, for a, a paper or project so you can get promoted, but also with respect um, to the people, to the beneficiaries and, and, and uh, to do no harm. Um, as Leanne Fuji said, um, uh, you know, um, it means a lot more than just ticking a box of IRB. And I think it's important that as a field, we continue to have these discussions. Completely agree. Uh, we've been speaking with Fatin Gosen, University of Arizona. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. 
Thank you for having me. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topic segment, we're joined by Heiko Vimen of the International Crisis Group, um, and we're going to talk about the unbelievable economic crisis which has befallen Lebanon. Uh, Heiko, welcome to the program. Hello. So tell us a little bit about just how did things get so horrible uh, in, uh, in, in Lebanon with the economic crisis? Where did this come from? Well, I mean, it originally, of course, does come from the, the structural problem of, uh, of the Lebanese consuming more than they produce and spending more than they earn, right? And, and that for a very long time has been paid for by uh, inflow of money, you know, from various sources, remittances, of course, uh, people investing in high-end real estate, and then increasingly um, people sort of buying financial products uh, produced, uh, we can say that, mm-hmm. by the central bank uh, with very high interest rates and at a time when interest rates everywhere were low. And as it emerged, uh, that was really um, um, new, like bringing about bringing in fresh money to pay uh, old creditors. And uh, some people have described that as a Ponzi scheme. And I think that's right. quite accurate. And uh, the music stopped uh, like two years ago, like, like it always does in these schemes. And so, and so this is intimately tied in with the, uh, the elite that rules the country, this, this cartel of politicians. Um, so can you, t- can you tie this a bit to that, uh, to the political stalemate? Well, yeah, I mean, essentially, uh, uh, right now the, the crisis is is so bad because uh, for two years nobody has done anything about it, right? I mean, so you can argue that, that what, what happened in 2016 could have happened um, um, in, in other places as well. I mean, the, the central bank trying for a while to to buy money for politics to, to get down to, uh, to uh, do economic reform and uh, make everything a bit more uh, sustainable and them not doing anything, you know. But the crisis now has been uh, become obvious and apparent since two years and uh, since 2019. And, uh, and it's there for everybody to see, but they haven't done anything about it because nobody wants to get uh, rid of their of their privileges and nobody wants to pay the political costs. I mean, one thing is that this elite, of course, is, is very closely linked to the economic elite, to the banking elite. Uh, some uh, senior politicians are actually uh, shareholders, big shareholders of banks themselves. So, so that that is one thing. And, and the other thing is, um, I mean, there, uh, there are many, many uh, skeletons in many closets, and all of this would have to come to light uh, when, the, when everything is cleared up. So they've been kicking the can down the road. For, and, and what may have been solvable, I'm not sure, but uh, potentially two years ago, has now become so much worse in, 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 by simply two years of inaction that it's hard to see at this point how, how it can be solved at all. And international lenders and, uh, and other countries, they don't want to just keep pouring money down the same sinkhole. <laughs> Well, of course, and and that's perfectly uh, that's perfectly the right thing to do. You know, I mean, if whatever we we now pump into the system uh, before we we address the structural crisis of the Lebanese banks, before we clean up uh, uh, the central bank, before we reach 
a point where the state can, can fund its budget by taxes, not by printing money. You know, uh, any pumping pumping in anything is just uh, wasting money. You know, it's not going to do anything. Now, it might be worth describing for, for listeners who haven't been to Lebanon lately, just how bad the crisis is. Can you tell us a little bit about the impact this is having on life in Lebanon? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's really, uh, it's really, really terrible. I mean, uh, it's like, I mean, so I was there. Um, that's perhaps the best point, the best way to explain it. You know, I, I arrived just the day before officially the subsidies were, were, were lifted or it was announced that they would be lifted because they cannot no longer be paid. And, uh, and I mean, these subsidies have like, to some extent, it protected the people, Lebanese consumers, from the real consequences of the crisis for the past two years, so that so that the reality sort of uh, did not really bite as hard as hard as it as it as it should have, and so so it was it was uh, announced subsidies would be lifted, and uh, the result was total panic. You know, like I mean, the lines at the gas stations that were long before became completely insane you know on that day in the morning we filled uh, we filled our, our car and it took us two hours you know and then what by, by now it's normal you wait at a gas station for two hours two hours is good uh, in the and that same evening it became clear that two hours is like an incredible privilege by now so we drove uh, just a few miles on the on, on this on the coastal highway and people were lining up nine in the evening you could see lines that were long kilometers, you know, two, three kilometer lines to a gas station that may perhaps open the next morning at seven, you know, so and these people are not going to wait for two hours, they were going to wait for two days, right? Um, you had then during that during that week, you had calls from hospitals who were basically saying, uh, if we don't find diesel to run our generators um, within the next 24 hours, everybody in the ICU will die, 40 people. You know? And I was at the hospital of the American University, which is one of the finest hospitals in the whole region. I mean, uh, you know, like state electricity is down to an hour or two hours per day. Uh, like every every other person who you talk to tell, will tell you the generator in my building has stopped working because they can't find any more diesel, you know. And, and other things that you don't think, even think about, like the next morning we, we ordered from the supermarket and it took a long time. And the guy finally came and he brought you know, bottled water. And he charged us double the usual price. And we say, why? You know, I said, well, you know, you go and you go and find bottled water. There isn't any, you know, because of course, if you need to move double bottled water from the source, which is in the mountain to the coast where people drink it, uh, you need diesel for your truck, you know, and and you can go you, this list, you know, you can go down that list for a long, long time and come up with all the up with all these stories. You know, there's a black market for bread. You know, there's a black market for for or there is no medicine and probably a black market for medicine. You know, and that list continues. Um, like a few days after these subsidies were lifted, like the army found uh, like a storage of benzene in the north somewhere. You know, and they, you know, people, of course, people are hoarding, saying subsidies are being cut. So prices will go up to so those who have storage that they, they will hoard it and they will not sell it and wait for the new prices to come. And some of them are protected by politicians doing this, you know. And so the army happened upon one of those storages. They started distributing uh, the benzene and then uh, the whole thing blew up. 35 people, I think, died. 
brought to the hospital with horrible burns. You know, you you hear stories about areas where um, where basically people like uh, young guys band together and chase away people from the gas stations who are not from the region and saying, this is our benzene. You, you bugger off. It's not yours. You know, I mean, that gives you an idea also where this can lead. Mm-hmm. So what are the political consequences of this level of deprivation, which, of course, is not felt equally uh, across, you know, you know, the elites are somewhat protected from this. Um, but what, if anything, is possible in terms of popular pressure for change or for this to lead to some kind of meaningful, um, you know, political consequences? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, so you would think that that um, in a situation like that, you know, people would would like just go mad and rise up to the street, go to the street and bring and bring those leaders down, you know. And uh, so far, I don't see it happening that that people go down to the street and 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 join together to bring these leaders down. I mean, what you see is uh, is on the political level, you see the usual bickering about uh, how the next government is supposed to be composed you know who takes what uh, uh, what uh, ministry and whatever whatever like um, thief you know in this pol- political thief you know and as, as as if nothing happened really you know business as usual and then you look and then you what you hear from people and 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 you realize i mean there's a rather than a tendency towards um, towards broad solidarity against those who are um, who are responsible for the disaster? Uh, you see more and more um, the, it retreat into identity politics, mm-hmm. uh, regionalism. People accusing one another. You know, one one half of the country uh, inc- uh, accuses Hezbollah of being of being responsible for all of this. Uh, the other half of the country that is with Hezbollah or. or at least with the broad political uh, uh, line uh, outline they have, uh, basically blames everything on an American uh, siege against the country, you know, and more and more just are, are like they're just desperately trying to get by and and, uh, and and have lost all hope, you know, and everybody, really, really everybody is leaving who can, you know, I mean, a friend of mine is a, is like a senior administrator in a, in a major, in a, big international school, you know, she said, you know, 40% of our teachers have left, um, you know, this week, two or three of my uh, colleagues, senior admins have left, uh, you know, I came back to this country 10 years ago to live here, you know, and, and I'm, I know I got, a, I had a decent job and I had a decent salary, you know, I mean, um, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to go back to, uh, to the year 1985, you know, I will also leave, you know, so everybody who has options leaves, you know, and, and as one, one person, one activist pointed out to me, he said, you know, like, right now, all the people who potentially could organize any form of meaningful opposition and resistance are leaving. You know, because they have options. They, edu- they, have, edu- they have education, they have passports. Uh, they can find work somewhere else, you know. And who, those people who are left are, will be the poor ones who are dependent on those political leaders, you know. And Allah, this, now these, these political elites may have not as much to distribute as they used to, uh, but the little that is left uh, is, is so much more valuable in a situation where everybody's poor, you know. So... I'm afraid it's actually what what we would expect, what we would hope for, a broad wave of solid of solidarity and resistance. Um, I don't really see it happening, and I fear if it 
if things continue the way they go, uh, you'd rather have the country falling apart into into a mosaic of hostile regions, you know, where basically everybody is trying to fend for himself, rallying behind their le local leader to get them the best possible uh, the, the, or the, the little possible that you can still get, uh, like taking care of local security and, and whatnot, and um, and and a very very uh, grim future, really. The, the disconnect between uh, the the political system and the needs and the vast needs of the ordinary people is nothing new in Lebanon. Of course, this has been a long a long standing complaint. Um, but what we're seeing right now really does seem to be on an order of magnitude different from what uh, Lebanon's experienced before. Um, do, you, do, you, do you see any um, way that uh, we can look at this uh, from the lens of political science, political analysis, and have anything to offer in terms of understanding or trying to affect uh, what's happening? Indeed, I mean, I mean, the dis I mean, I will just, I mean, I just can give you, I mean, you know, if you want to use them or not, if you the time, you know, like two, like two, two examples of those disconnect, you know. So that was like a month ago, um, a mage, the, the daughter of a, of a senior Hezbollah person, um, uh, had her wedding, you know, and uh, it was a, like a, a, it was like a, a roaring party, you know, and you see these hundreds of people in these like, like expensive outfits and everything and uh, you see the bride uh, at some point shouting over the PA and or to, to get tequila for the DJ or I don't know what it was you know I mean so, I mean so, and while the whole country is in darkness you know you see you, you saw the same a week ago I mean like another senior politician who's actually on the US sanctions list, the former minister having a celebration of his uh, of his daughter, you know, and uh, and the same ostentatious kind of display of wealth, you know, and uh, and like and then like a relative a relative of his like on social media like heaping abuse at people who were going to protest at at that. Uh, at that wedding, because that minister, that ex-minister, has also been summoned for in the interrogation for interrogation in the in the port blast uh, investigation. He's just not going. He doesn't doesn't care. You know, he just complete com the complete complete like disregard for any for any form of like legality, uh, rule of law, whatever morality. You know, I'm you know I don't, I don't ethics. I'm not sure. I mean, of I mean you really really find find it quite quite hard to describe how blatant this all is you know now i mean from a political science perspective i mean i mean my my take on this is is a bit um is a bit like is a bit so um you know when the when the civil war ended 30 years ago of course okay I mean, we had a bunch of, uh, of militia leaders and we had a bunch of, of, uh, of business people. And of course, that was also overlapping to some extent. And they, and they moved from an order of war where basically everybody like, controlled a certain place, you know, like plundered a certain place uh, on a permanent base, so to speak, uh, to, uh, to, to join, to patch together the state and like uh, collectively control the state or like a, a, a smokescreen of a state, perhaps is more accurate to say. I mean, as an interface with the outside world to get funds investment, you know, so basically 
peace, peace, the peace economy, to establish a peace economy, because the war economy had, had run its course, right? You know, there's like Lebanon was no longer interesting as a as a as a theater for a proxy war or anything else. Uh, the money, the money is that uh, the funds that were that used to come in for that, and everybody would could live off happily, uh, or who had the militia or was politically relevant or militarily, those funds were drying up. So they moved to a different model, and that model required that they all cooperate to to maximize the benefits. Um, now, the usefulness of this model has uh, expired, right? I mean, the they have plundered the, sta the state to the point of utter bankruptcy. There's nothing left to steal, so to, so to speak. So it's basically uh, um, like falling apart into its uh, composite parts. And these leaders and these groups uh, are basically all, are all now securing uh, their control over what remains of it and uh, waiting until maybe some formula uh, comes up where this, where again, it makes financial sense to, to patch this all together. And, but as long as it doesn't, um, they basically are in self-preservation mode. They, they minimize the damage they mini uh, to themselves, the political damage. They maybe even benefit uh, if, if this description that, uh, that uh, the people who are, who are like going to make trouble are leaving and those who, who don't are staying so back essentially ruling will become easier perhaps you know and uh, essentially waiting waiting for this new formula to, to 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 glue things back together if it's if it's beneficial and if not they don't well that's um it's grim but uh i think that's a fairly realistic assessment of where we are i want to thank heiko Vimin for joining us uh and thanks for taking the time thank you very much mark keep up the good work <laughs>